When I was in seminary in the 1990s, it was a painful and difficult time for many of my classmates who were gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. Because within the many of the mainline Christian denominations, there was a large and ongoing debate about sexual orientation, gender identity and expression. And many of those traditions were responding in deeply reactive and painful and hurtful ways. I have friends, aspiring colleagues who were putting tens of thousands of dollars, their hearts, their lives on the line. And were being told in many different ways that simply because of who they were, they were not worthy or ministry, and many of them had to face difficult, painful choices that I did not have to face about lying about who they were, about hiding who they were. In the midst of this, the seminary uh, which I attended was a very progressive seminary, and they decided that one of the best ways we could respond was to hold a large worship service, not just for the seminary community, but a whole bunch of different spiritual communities all throughout New York City. And the title of it was, My Head is Lifted Up. My Head is Lifted Up. I remember the artist's rendering of this symbol of the worship service was this face. That rather than looking down or away or hiding, looked up and out with a sense of peacefulness and presence. All throughout the service, there was this one powerful litany, this sung response. My head is lifted up. Whom shall I fear? My head is lifted up. Whom shall I fear? Spoke beautifully to the people in the room and still speaks to me. As words that call us beyond shame and into the presence of the love that holds us. So in this book, Daring Greatly, that is the basis for this message series that we're doing here. Renee Brown talks about shame as such a destructive experience and emotion because it keeps us from what is most basic to our hearts, our souls, the very essence of who we are. If we believe we are unworthy which is another word for shame, we will not find our way towards compassion, connection, and love. So essential for our being and our being alive. If we believe that we are unworthy because of shame, we will engage in all kinds of isolating behaviors, hiding behaviors, shame-faced. I mean, just that phrase, shame-faced behaviors, putting on a false face to the world or hiding our face away entirely. Shame is so often for so many of us about the body or we wear it on the body. I think of this one scene, this beautiful, now even more painful and resonant scene. Because of dear Robin Williams from Goodwill Hunting. Some of you know this movie, Goodwill Hunting, about the Matt Damon character, Will Hunting, who is a genius and also a deeply troubled young man because of the violence that has been visited upon him when he was growing up. And he hides behind that mask of outward aggression and violence and being too tough to care. And he is matched up with a therapist. 
played by Robin Williams, who understands the background that he comes from. And in this scene right at the end of the movie, you know, it's the big Hollywood scene. It all comes together. It's a big breakthrough. Life is rarely this simple. And yet still, this scene is so true. He says these words you see printed there, showing him the pictures of what's in his case file, the picture of his his own battered body. It's not your fault, he says. It's not your fault. But before that, he says his other words, because look how Matt Damon's eyes, look where they go. Down. Not looking out. His head is not lifted up. Robin Williams says with limitless tenderness, look at me, son. Look at me, son. So much of the healing of shame in our lives comes from being able to look each other in the face. Look each other eye to eye. And even more than that, heart to heart. To do as Brene Brown encourages us to allow ourselves to see and to be seen. And this isn't just about our relationships with other people. It's also about how we can cultivate a way of seeing and treating our own lives when we feel shame. Seeing our own lives open-heartedly. This is something that I had to reckon with. Really reckon with over my recent sabbatical this summer. The truth of it and the realization that I came to is last year I was burnt out. Some of you had an indication of that, and I think I'd use euphemisms like, I'm really tired, or I'm afraid of burning out. I wasn't sleeping well, wasn't eating all that well. If you've been around here for a while, you know that I have almost limitless enthusiasm for everything that Wellsprings does. Love being the minister of this place. And that enthusiasm was starting to diminish within me. I was feeling lonely and isolated. Now, the context of all this, and again, some of you know this story, is that, you know, we've done, we've grown in a way that no other new UU congregation has in the last 25 years. Starting with 20 people seven and a half years ago to now 250 adults, and that's just the adults. All the kids as well. And, as some of you know, two and a half years ago, we had to face some difficult times in this congregation. Emerging from the Great Recession, it was also a fact that our initial capitalization, our initial infusion of cash was all gone. And we had to begin living within our means. And we had to make some difficult choices. And let me say, I am so proud So proud of the way that we handled the last two and a half years. We did not respond with anxiety. We did not respond with anger. We did not respond with arm twisting. Instead, we took the time to build a more mature way of talking about money and living within our means and being honest with each other. And it's about so much more than the money. So much more than the money. And now the fact that we've been able to restore those Some of those cuts. And now that we are self-sufficient, it's about so much more than money. It's about in these last two and a half years in which we could have gone the opposite way into more anxiety and more blame and more doubt. No, we went the opposite direction. Addictions and recovery. Family ministry. A 930 service that wasn't nearly quite as large as all of you right here and the amount of people in the room that took all the names to honor our relationship with Chester County Futures. 
All these things came out of the last two and a half years of doing this difficult time right. So bravo. I'm so proud of you and I'm so proud of us. And yet. For me. The feelings that were there. If only I had been smarter. If only I had been a better minister. If only I had been more savvy, a better communicator, more charismatic. If only, if only, if only. Then the last two and a half years would have been totally seamless. If only I was better than I actually am. And those numbers, by the way, those great, big, wonderful Wellsprings numbers, I get a lot of props from within the denomination for those. And by extension, so do you. So I'm sharing that with you. But those numbers can be an idol before which I bow down, not out of reverence, but out of fear for maintaining an image of myself as a success. So in short, last spring, I knew it. I was exhausted, not just by the amount of work. And by the way, I am what we call in the uh, religious community biz. I'm a church planner. And you don't do that unless you really, really, really want to work. So it's not just about the amount of work over the last seven and a half and even before that last nine years. It's also about how I was processing all of these challenges that come with leading a growing community that has struggles. There was one particular moment when it all hit home for me last spring. Two months before I was about to start sabbatical. I went on a weekend-long training for what's called mindful inquiry. It's one of the cornerstones of being a mindfulness teacher, and it's actually one of the most difficult, vulnerable parts of being a mindfulness teacher, so much so that a lot of mindfulness teachers refuse to do it. They actually really don't integrate it into their teaching, but it's really missing a tremendous opportunity for connection with people. And knowing this, the Center for Mindfulness at Jefferson that teaches and continues to train me, they had this three-day-long training, and it filled up in like two weeks. There were 50 of us there, and there was a lot of anxiety in the room, a lot of feeling like, okay, are we going to get it? Can we get it? And that first day of the training, I was not getting it. Come on, I've been doing this for two years, right? Two years of being a mindfulness teacher. I got to get this by now, right? I got to master this by now, right? And so I left there that first day feeling, you failure, come on. All those voices, not enough. And on the second day, because the teachers of this mindfulness training are really, really wise people, and they recognize so many of us brought our attachment to success with us, they actually made that second day more of a retreat. And so it was yoga and meditation, and self-inquiry, and getting in touch with all of the things that we're bringing to this practice that we want to do so well at. And so, in one of the last parts of that uh, practice that morning, they had us do a walking meditation, a half-hour walking meditation outside, and in that, they encouraged us. Really, the only way you can do inquiry with another person is you're willing to do it with yourself. So stay with your experience. And the first part of that experience as I walked and paid attention and stayed grounded in my breath was, you idiot. 
Why can't you get this? And it was anger and self-judgment and recrimination, and I chose to stay with that. That was the truth of my experience. And as I continued to pay attention and particularly focus my attention on my bodily sensations, I noticed that there was a real tightness in this part of the body, this part of the body right here. I think we call it the heart, right? I think we call it the heart. I was getting a little in touch with the heart. My heart wasn't feeling so good. And there was this tightness. There was this tension. And I really paid attention to it. And then all of a sudden, another awareness emerged. A sadness and a tiredness. And alongside that sadness and tiredness, also something I had not felt in nearly nearly deeply enough for a very long time, which was compassion towards my experience. Not self-esteem, compassion. I recognized how harsh I had been towards myself for such a length of time. Now, this is where I give myself a lot of credit, honestly and authentically. This is not my first shame rodeo. I have ridden that bull and been bucked off of it so many times in my life. Not my first shame rodeo. I knew that these feelings weren't going to go away easily or quickly. And so what I did was the wisest thing I could, which is to do absolutely nothing precipitous. Make no precipitous changes or choices. I didn't prepare my resume. None of that. The truth, even more so than that, was this which is that I had been around enough leaders and heard enough stories that so many of us have of leaders of communities, religious or otherwise, who in their own brokenness and in their own stress create only more shame, more harm, more abuse to themselves or others, especially, by the way, and I have to be honest here, male leaders. This is where my spiritual practice saved me. Mindfulness has nothing at all to do with Calgon, take me away and make it all better. It's about being in touch with the complexity and the fullness of who we are. And so I recognize, I said to myself often through last spring, sometimes the best win is to simply not engage in self-defeat. Sometimes that's the best win there is. And I'm one of the fortunate ones, folks. I was really clear as the year went on last year that I needed time away, that I needed a sabbatical. So again, thank you. I mean, I know so many of us wrestle with burnout, and yet so few of us are in working environments in which we're not granted sabbaticals. So thank you. So please hear me on this. Please hear me on this. I am not burned out today. Sabbatical granted, sabbatical achieved. (laughs) All that yoga and all that nature hiking and all that getting in touch with something that is deeper and more profound and more loving than even my identity as lead minister of Wellsprings. I love what I do here. I'm blessed to be able to do what I do here. But I need to touch something far different and far deeper than that to remember who I really am. 
So yes, I feel more enthusiastic again today. I'm glad to be back in these last six weeks. And let me tell you, these last six weeks have been busy. (laughs) But something has shifted. And I'm being clear. And I'm being clearer about working at a sustainable pace and about being kinder to myself and hopefully by extension as well, being kinder to the other people who I work with at Wellsprings, which is all of you. So if something has shifted and it's, hey, all good now, right? (laughs) I'm still me. (laughs) Why am I sharing this today? Because I was resistant to share this today. It's not as if, for those of you who have been here for a while, it's not as if I have any problem with being vulnerable up here. I've shared with you honestly and openly over the years that we've been here together about my alcoholism and my recovery, about my struggles with mental health and depression and anxiety. So why the resistance about talking about burnout? I think it's this, because I believe with every fiber of my being that addiction and mental illness and mental health have absolutely nothing to do with weakness, nothing to do with my own weakness, nothing to do with anyone else's weakness. And yet there was a part of me that I had to listen to and like, but I had to listen to that associated my professional struggles with weakness. That I was not strong enough and I was not tough enough. I have a long standing history with compensation and overcompensation with feeling that I'm not strong enough or tough enough. It was a point of uh, pride, perverse pride, self-damaging pride, that in college when I think I hovered around 130 pounds, that I could sit and drink with guys who were 190, 200, 210 pounds, And sometimes they'd be the first ones to pass out before me. Compensating for feeling not enough and feeling weak is part of my past. And it's still something I have to wrestle with. Brene Brown talks about in this wonderful book, Daring Greatly, about how men and women can experience shame or have shame triggers in different ways. And I think she's actually far too binary about it. You know, men's experience over here and women's experience over here. Men experience, quote unquote, female triggers for shame and vice versa. And she does observe some things that I think are basically true, if not essentially true. We heard Lee, our intern, talk so beautifully and powerfully last week about what it's like to grow up as a woman in this culture and with certain types of female bodies are esteemed and idealized and other certain types of female bodies are diminished and demeaned. Renee Brown says that another trigger beyond the perfectionism that so many women face in this culture and are projected onto them is the, you know, I can, uh, what's that old song, uh, get the bacon and fry it up in the pan, that women face the, the challenge of having to do it all. And that's a trigger for so many women. And she says for men, there's one particular trigger, one particular trigger for shame. And it's weakness. Most men, most men that I know, will do almost anything to avoid presenting what they feel is weak about themselves to the world. And obviously I struggle with this too, the sense of inadequacy, this I am not enough or strong enough or tough enough. 
And yeah, I've tried to compensate with that. And for that, even in my ministry here at Wellsprings, maybe some of you have heard me say these words. I am making up for an alcoholic life in which I half-assed everything and barely showed up. Now I'm using my whole ass in my ministry. I'm showing up now. I'm burning off my half-assed karma. But here's the thing. I was using the wrong bodily part as the reference. It's not about working with a half-ass or a whole ass. It's about working with my whole heart. I wasn't living amends when I was being masochistic. I was just being harsh. And yeah, I have some trepidation right now in expressing this to you. I can feel my heart beating a little faster than normal. wonder if this might be my Jerry Maguire moment. The things we think and do not say, and then we say them, and then people laud us for them, and then, you know, 24 hours later, we're looking to pack our bags and leave because people don't want us around anymore. I don't really think that of you, and it's still a fear. I had a pretty intensive dialogue with my therapist, with my little old rabbi mindfulness teacher. And I said, I'm afraid to share this with him, even though I think I probably should, to be honest and to face up. And he said, OK, what's your concern? He said, I'm afraid that they're not going to turn to me for help, knowing what a mess I am that when they're in a mess. And he said, well, I think you're kind of projecting a lot of things onto them. And by the way, <laughs> by the way, you've talked a lot about these people. That doesn't sound like who they are. And he said, well, what's really there? Why? And I answered something really honestly, and I just blurted it out. And immediately I started to laugh at it. It was actually very healing. I said, I don't want them to think I'm not a superhero. <laughs> Kind of like this character here, if you've seen this. <laughs> Holy crap, I'm Batman. I'm not Batman. And yet, like so many of us, holding ourselves to unreasonable standards can compensate for that fear of weakness by engaging in aggression or hostility or hiding out towards ourselves and towards others, especially those of us who identify as men, who have all kinds of projections about the kind of superheroes we ought to be. And so I don't want to be a superhero. I don't even want to be a better hero. I just want to be a better person. And I want to be a better minister. I want to be a better man. So that's why I'm facing up today to you and with you. Because I know I'm part of this really rotten, lousy culture that reduces who we are so often to how much we have in the bank or whether we're a maker or a taker or how much we produce or how powerful we are. I'm facing up because I want Wellsprings to continue to be a kinder place, a more just place, a more compassionate place. That when we can face up with each other, we can go out there into our lives as children and spouses and leaders and teachers and all the things and all the ways we express the energy of our lives and create the connections that help and heal and allow us to be the whole people that we are if only we would give ourselves permission. I'm facing up 
because of the spiritual tradition in which I grew up. The days of awe, as they are called, just came to a conclusion yesterday, ending with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's about much more than just forgiveness, Yom Kippur. It is about taking the honest time to engage our lives and tell the truth and to face up. Sometimes that's difficult. I know it's not easy for me. So that we might begin again. Begin with the better angels of our nature. And Yom Kippur is important in this way as well, too, because it's a corrective against how forgiveness is so often talked about in our culture, which is this. I'm going to let go of my resentment toward another person who hurt me. I'm going to forgive them. I'm not looking to restore a relationship. And actually, sometimes we shouldn't look to restore a relationship. But it's like the thing that, uh, you know, the Buddha said, uh, you know, uh, holding on to resentments is like uh, drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. By the way, the Buddha did not say that. <laughs> but that's one way of talking about forgiveness. And it's not wrong. It's just incomplete. And it's reflective of a culture in which... Many of us are feel isolated and don't give ourselves permission to shape up and face up with the people who we really do trust and who we love and who are safe for us. And so a daring greatly forgiveness is about facing up. And that's why I'm facing up and telling you some truth about my life today, because forgiveness can also be reconciliation. Forgiveness can be the restoration of relationship. Forgiveness can be, as that ancient word says, atonement. And I'm not the first one to break it down. Forgiveness can be this at one met. That we don't have to be driven by shame or fear of inadequacy or that we're not perfect or that we're not strong enough or that we feel we're not enough and we actually can look each other in the eyes and know that we are loved. So I'm facing up today simply because of this. Because I know how powerful and destructive shame is. And I also know how powerful love and connection and belonging are. And I believe that love and connection and belonging are what I want to tie myself to and what I want to trust. So thank you for letting me face up. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirit of love who gathers us in in spite of the fact that sometimes we believe we are not worthy. Through our injuries, our faults, our flaws, our struggles, our shame. The spirit of love from whom we come and to whom we return and with whom we live if we choose to regularly trust. Love. Trust, compassion, trust, connection. That invites us to see face to face and heart to heart, even if doing so, especially when doing so, is difficult. May we be a face to face people and be blessed in our presence together. Amen.